Madeline, I, I heard that you were good, but that was ridiculous. Thank you. Yeah. And um, Chris Hamp and I have already decided that you won't need to carry that back home. Yeah, you can just leave it here, and so every week we'll have Madeline play for us. So praise the Lord. This, uh, this beast here is about 100 pounds plus, maybe, something like that. And uh, Chris and Madeline drive um, 40, 45 minutes or so to get here. And um, so we're greatly blessed. And talking about blessed, look at you. Amen. You look awesome. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I couldn't help but sit here and think as I was listening to your voices just what heaven's going to look like, what it's going to sound like. Um, I need to apologize right up. I told everybody downstairs that I'm not normally an emotional pastor. And I was talking to a young lady last week, and she said she was kind of searching for a church. And she said, I'm just kind of struggling because my pastor just cries all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yikes. <laughs> so anyway, you know, but it's good to have emotions, isn't it? God has given to us a beautiful way of expressing our love for one another. And uh, the joy of expressing our love for him uh, through lifting up our voices and our hearts. So uh, welcome. If you're here for the first time, we're glad to have you. It's our joy if you're watching online live or if you're sitting in the parking lot at 105.9, our monstrous radio station, uh, reaching the outer rims of the parking lot. It's just a blessing to have such power in our hands. It is just absolutely amazing. Uh, Hamp and others have worked hard on making that possible. In fact, just yesterday he texted, or I guess it was Friday maybe, and said the station's giving a lot of feedback, and so he's had to do a lot of finagling to make it happen. So maybe it's being used, I don't know. But we wanted to make it possible for everybody to be here. Next Sunday we'll be back on our regular schedule at the 9 a.m. service and 10.30 service. Uh, but we just wanted to do something uh, unusual, something different for us. Hamp and I talked a long, long time about this a uh, couple months ago. And I thought it would be a real blessing to have everybody here. Little did we know that you'd come and fill up the seats, but we're so excited that you did. It's a good day to be together. I was sitting here thinking as uh, you all were singing that last year, I remember my son Christian and I were literally behind our shed at our house as I clipped on a little microphone and live fed it into the phone to record an early service message for Easter and then we had to record a, a service as well. As you know, we were not able to meet at all. And uh, who would ever think that we would not have the joy of meeting on Easter of all times that the church couldn't get together? But the church is strong, right? Because Jesus is strong. Because the Lord is powerful. And he will build his church no matter what anybody says. And you're here. I don't know if you're redeemed or not, but you sure look redeemed to me. And so if you are here because you know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, welcome. If you, don't know Lord, if you don't know Jesus, welcome. Because Jesus will receive all who seek him. He'll welcome all who seek him. So, to keep me from being as long-winded as Hamp accused me of... Um, and he told me this morning that he inadvertently texted somebody this week and they referred to him as um, Burl Ives. So uh, those of you who know who Burl Ives, just, you know, that's a loving, loving jab at each other, right? <laughs> Hamp is a dear brother. And um, By the way, can I just say this too? That I don't want to distract us too much from the message. I know our time is getting on, but um, I, I, I want to brag on your leaders. 
you have some of the most wonderful men in leadership that any church could ever have. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the men who serve behind the scenes, uh, the men who pray for you and the men who care for you. Uh, those specifically our elders and our deacons and many others of you, uh, but you are greatly blessed to have men like this. And so uh, a tribute to the Lord for all that he's doing in our midst and in our days. And I can only imagine that we're going to see greater things. Heaven's getting a lot brighter, isn't it? The glory of the Lord is, is shining brighter every day. Well, enough about all of that. Let me just give you a quick message here. Um, right after church, I had been mentioning that there's going to be a search for lost souls for the children. Uh, we were going to meet out in the front, or we are going to meet out in the front, but that's been changed to the back, right, Dave? Out in the back. And so, uh, kids, if you'll meet just right behind the church here in the parking lot, they'll be there to meet you after the service, okay? All right. Well, today is the day of celebration, so let's celebrate as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, if we couldn't already tell, our hearts are just filled up to the capacity this morning as we're just thinking about how we couldn't meet last year on the greatest day of the church life and also this year that we've all struggled with so much, just been so many upside down things. And Lord, now we just count it such a joy, such an incredible joy to be together. As we look into your word this morning, may our hearts just be more and more made alive as we're reminded of your great work. And we've already sung about it, uh, these beautiful songs, and listened to the men singing and lifting up their voices. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the joy of, of this opportunity and pray that all that's said and done here would be not a reflection of any individual, but be only you, Lord, as we highlight you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So last week... If you're with us on Palm Sunday, I delivered a message called, Who is This Man? Uh, today, I want to flip that around a little bit, and I titled it, Who Are You? Who are you? And I'd like to ask you to hold on to that question in your mind as you listen to the Lord this morning and as we go through his word. So one last time to keep it just going here. If you'll stand with me in honor of the Lord, that's what we like to do if you're new with us. We like to stand in honor of the Lord. And I want to just read a very familiar passage from Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Praise the Lord. You may be seated.
I don't know if you're a follower of Broadway and the musicals that occur on Broadway, um, but there's one in particular that has been on the charts for lots of years. My wife and daughter went to see it. Uh, some of you have been to see it. It's that one called Wicked. Um, it has amazing music to it. Uh, I have been well indoctrinated with the music, not because I went to the Broadway play, but because my wife and daughter, and especially my wife, has loved it so much that I know the lyrics very well. At least uh, she thinks I'm not listening, but I really am listening, and I know what uh, they're saying. There's one song in particular that hit my mind this morning as I was preparing the message, and that was For Good. Uh, Some of you know the story. I won't try to recount the story, but let me just give you just a portion of how those lyrics go. I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason, bringing something we must learn, and we're led to those who help us most to grow if we let them, and we help them in return. Well, I don't know if I believe that's true, but I know I'm who I am today because I knew you. And the song goes on to repeat something very similar to that, and it's just a beautiful uh, tribute, really, to two friends, sisters in the play. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, this is exactly the heart of a person who has come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. A friend, the Bible says, who sticks closer than a brother. A friend in the life, in the dark times as well as in the good times. A friend when nobody else is around, the Lord Jesus is always there. And so again, I know the intention of the song, which is to display the friendships of these people and how people can change because of a relationship. And that certainly fits with how Christ has changed us. I was just talking to some of you this morning, and we heard testimonies this morning, beautiful testimonies of the fantastic work of the Lord as he's changed hearts. And that's what he's in the business to do. Jesus came to change hearts. If you're here this morning and you need a heart change, Jesus is the person. He is the God-man who's come to change hearts, to set us free from the bondage of sin, but to change our hearts. We were just talking again this morning, and we were saying that you cannot look into the face of Jesus and not be changed. If you encounter Jesus, you're going to change. If you encounter him in the way that you know you want him, you will change. But too often that's not the case for some people. Most people live very lonely lives, thinking that there's nobody to love them, nobody to really care about them. Our world is inundated with that kind of thinking and that kind of belief system, uh, that there's nobody for me, there's nobody that would want me. And so people live very hopeless lives, quite honestly. People struggling for any kind of relationship at all. And when that happens... When life goes that direction, often people will just give up hope. They'll just go the other direction totally. And we've watched stories like that. We've watched people live their lives that way where they've had such blessings but end up giving in to the evil of their own hearts and following a road that literally leads to nowhere. And again, can I just say to you this morning, if you find yourself already in that way, on that path, if there's some tendency to pull you down that road, I just want to say to you again by the authority of God's word that Jesus can change that. And he longs to change that. He came to give us hope. Maybe not fix everything in this life, but he came to provide for us an internal hope of the heart and an eternal home. This morning we're going to look at several people who were changed by Jesus. 
And again, that's the business that the Lord is in. And as I was putting my thoughts together this this week, I thought, um, what better thing than to tribute, give the tribute to the Lord as one who is the change agent? And so I thought it'd be interesting as we look at people's lives this morning, or just rather to do that, is to look at people's lives. We were blessed this morning. I already mentioned this by the testimonies downstairs. We didn't get to everybody because the time wouldn't allow. But to hear the changed heart of an individual is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, you and I were built to just be gravitated towards the reality of a person's life. We, we love that. We love stories. We love to hear what happens in the midst of that story. We want to know what the outcome is as we follow along their ups and downs. And so God gives us a book literally filled with people's lives that were just like that. Ups and downs. And I just want to look at a couple of them this morning from this particular text in the chapter before. So I want to just do a little bit of a fill-in just to give us an update on where we are. You'll remember last week started the Passion Week, and that just simply means the, the week of Jesus' suffering. As he rode into Jerusalem to establish himself as the king, the disciples still didn't recognize him that way. They thought still in their hearts he was coming to be, yes, the Messiah, but they believed, just like the Jews, that the Messiah would be the one who would rule over people and become that earthly king. But Jesus wasn't that. Jesus came to rule over the hearts of men and women. Not necessarily to set them free from the bondage of their corrupted leaders, but to set their hearts free so that they would experience eternal peace and eternal freedom of the soul. And so that's what he did. His three years on earth were for that purpose, to establish his ministry. And he rode into Jerusalem and he would teach and various things would happen. He would observe the Passover and then... Of all things, he would be arrested by the very people that he had come to rescue, the chosen people Israel. They had rejected him as the Messiah, and so they put him to arrest. But let's go back to chapter 23 for just a minute, and hopefully you'll be able to follow a lot of this on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, there is a Bible there in the chair. If you need one, you're welcome to take that with you. If you don't have your own, it's our gift to you. Back in chapter 3, though, and we don't have time to read all of this. You'll just have to follow with me. We will pick up bits and pieces of it. But back in chapter 23, just before we went, what we read this morning, we're introduced to a man named Simon, Simon of Cyrene. And as I was going through these people that we're going to look at, I kind of I put a, a tagline along their name that was kind of identification for me as to who they were. And I just simply put him as an uninformed man. Simon comes across, and you're going to see this, I believe, as a man who was just uninformed. Oh, he understood, I think, the Jewish faith, but he was uninformed about Jesus. Again, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe somebody invited you here, or you've heard about Jesus, you've been a part of the church, sort of, but you're still somewhat uninformed. I think you'd fit into the life of Simon here. We're introduced to him in verse 26 of, verse, of chapter 23. While Jesus is on his way literally carrying his cross on his back, not Simon, but Jesus, which was required of all the victims of Roman crucifixion. They were compelled by physical means to put the cross on their back to carry it to the place of the literal spot of execution, not just as a physical torture, but also as a mental and an emotional torture, a psychological torture, as it would all feed into that. Because in the Romans' mind, they were criminals, and that's truly what the case was in a lot of cases. The Romans perfected the cross, 
as though it had been, even though it had been around for many, many, many years, the Romans perfected it. So they would think, why not be treated this way? You're a criminal, and you should die a criminal's death. But we're told, according to Luke and the other gospel writers, that Jesus was no longer able physically to bear the cross. He just couldn't hold up under what he had been through, and he had been through an excruciating physical beating. In fact, after being beaten so severely, we are told by Isaiah, the prophet, that he was even unrecognizable as a man, if you can imagine such a thing. Isaiah 52, 14 says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. I actually like the way the NIV puts it. It says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And that should give you enough of a picture. And so the Romans thought to keep him dying on the street because to them he was a criminal and he should be crucified and they didn't want to hinder that from happening. They caused or called a man named Simon from the crowd not knowing who he was and uh, compelled him to carry the cross the rest of the way, which would be a life-changing event for Simon. I want you to imagine just for a minute if you're Simon. There seems to be very little that we really know about him, but... Several things we do know if we search the scriptures, like number one in Luke 23.1, we're told that he was from Cyrene. That may not mean anything to you and me until we do some studying on that, and that would be a town in North Africa, which would be modern-day Libya. And that certainly has been in the news over the years. And we also know that in Libya, or Cyrene, there was a significant Jewish population Because some of those people came to Jerusalem for Passover. Simon was one of them, at least as best we can tell. In fact, according to Acts chapter 2, and don't turn to this, verse 10, when the Holy Spirit came at the time of Pentecost, people from Cyrene were included with those whom the apostles were ministering to or preaching to in their own language. And you can read that on that amazing day. And we also know that there were enough men in Jerusalem from Cyrene, according to Acts chapter 6 and verse 9, that tell us that there was a Jewish synagogue that was established there in Jerusalem. And you know, according to the Jews, there had to be, I think it was at least 10 people, 10 men, 10 individuals that were necessary to start the synagogue, and so we're told that. So more than likely, Simon was at least there to observe the Passover, as this was the Passover week. Maybe not knowing Jesus, probably hearing about him, certainly, and that would be why he would have been there on the street that day as the crowd was hustling together to see this circus sideshow, if you will, of this man who professed to be the Messiah, at least to them, and was not, and so they were ready to kill him because they were looking for a king. If nothing else, he came out of curiosity. That's kind of our human nature, isn't it? are very curious about things, to see this man who had made such a fuss. But what we know scripturally is that in God's divine providence, he chose Simon not only to be there, God chose him to be there, but to also take part in the Lord's crucifixion, to be a person in the midst of it, by being the very force to carry literally the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, Because, again, the Lord was unable to do that. 
What Simon didn't know, I believe, was that God was working his plan to affect Simon in a way that he would have no idea of what God was doing in order to change him for the good. There's a second thing that we know about Simon that you don't learn from Luke, and that is in Mark's gospel, we learn that Simon is referred to in verse 21 of chapter 15, not only the man Simon of Cyrene, but Mark adds this little parenthetical phrase where he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Now, to you and me, that doesn't really mean much, but to Mark's readers in the day, that would have meant a lot. Or he wouldn't have put it in there. In fact, we learn from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that there is a relationship with Simon and this Rufus who is mentioned by Paul. In Romans 16, 13, in Paul's closing words to the church in Rome, he says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now, most scholars believe that this Rufus that's being mentioned by Paul was the son of Simon of Cyrene. I think this is why. It's because Simon likely was saved while he was carrying the cross of Jesus. You can't have that kind of a physical encounter with the man Jesus and not be changed, right? And so very likely, at least in my mind, it was Simon's salvation occurrence, or at least somewhere close to that event, which would also then mean that Simon's family would be greatly affected, would they not? Again, dad or mom doesn't come to know the Lord Jesus Christ without it passing on to the rest of the family in some way. And so no doubt that would be the case. And then again, when Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote it from Rome. Probably after Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome, and I just read the greeting from Paul there, meaning that Paul wouldn't have mentioned the name Rufus or his mother in such a positive manner if the name Rufus weren't well known in the church. And the people reading Mark's letter and knowing about Rufus would have understood this or at least understood a little bit of it. And so what I'm simply trying to say from this is is what all that means is that the Lord purposefully chose Simon on that day to change his heart. It was no accident that Simon was there at that moment, at that time, at that point in history. But there's also the fact that his family would hear the gospel. And be saved. I think when God looked at Simon and he divinely, providentially proclaimed that this would be the case with Simon's life, God was also thinking about his family who would become members in the church of Rome and have their names listed for eternity for us. Just like we read. And then you add to all of that, we also know according to Acts 11, 19 and 20, that in Cyrene, back at Simon's home, In North Africa, there would be also a church that was started, no doubt because of Simon's changed heart. If Simon were a Jew, there wouldn't be a church there. There would be his attending of the synagogue, but not a church. But yet we find in Acts 11 that there was certainly a church there that would become also a missionary sending church. You add to that that one of the men from the church in Cyrene named Lucius eventually became one of the pastors of the church in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries, which you can read in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, as I'm reading through this and I'm studying this, I'm looking at one little verse that we're told that this man named Simon from Cyrene picks up a cross and he helps Jesus carry it. But in the divine mind of the Lord, 
He strategically places this man where he has him because he would do a domino effect to lead others to Christ, to lead others to Christ, to lead others to Christ, to become a missionary sending church that's used greatly in the lives of the kingdom people. What do we say from all of that? It is no accident, beloved, that you're here this day. God does nothing by accident. The Bible tells us that we are all creations of His. You're a creation. God made you. You may not know Him as your God, but He made you. And because of you being here today, not because of me or the singers or the lights or anything else, God has you here because He has a message for you, which could prove eternal rewards not only for you, but for people multitude numbers over in the days to come. If you will listen. And you will see this man Jesus for who he truly is. There's another person that came across in my study, which was the criminal, uh, one of the two men, one of the two criminals that I'm calling a rebellious man. First, we have this man who seemed very unassuming, very uncertain, Simon, but now we have a man that Jesus encounters who is a criminal, a known rebel. Look with me in Luke 23, verse 32. We're told that on that hillside in Golgotha, two others also were criminal, who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they, the Romans, crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. A very familiar passage to anyone who has ever searched the scriptures or been a part of any uh, Easter service or resurrection celebration. You know that. Now, what we don't know beyond what we're told here is much about these two men. More than likely, they were a part of the insurrection that Barabbas was promoting. You remember that when Jesus was taken away, they wanted Barabbas released. Well, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was one of those who stirred up problems for Rome and tried to come against Rome. And so perhaps, I don't know this for sure, but more than likely these men were a part of that group. What we do know, though, is that these men represent two types of people. One who fully surrendered his heart to Jesus and the other one who would not. And that becomes very clear when you read verse 39. Notice what Luke says. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know, as I look at these two men, I'm kind of thinking and reminded that one of them represents those who look at Jesus only as a man, basically incapable of making any changes, a good man, a man who doesn't deserve the kind of treatment that he normally receives, but really nothing more than a man. Even mocking him and saying, you know, if you want me to follow you, Jesus, then I need you to fix some things like, can you help me win the lottery? Because I'm in pretty bad financial shape right now and that would be a quick ticket out of this. 
Some people might say, well, if Jesus were really God, then he could fix me and heal my cancer, heal my grandmother, heal my grandfather, my husband, my wife, my baby. Some would say, or if he was really God, then he would fix my company and all the problems we've had this last year under COVID. Or give me a job that pays me well enough to provide for my family. Or even better, some would say, if he's really God, then he would fix my marriage. Because right now it stinks. Or even bring my loved one back. Some of you have lost people this year. In other words, something big. I mean, if this were really God, then they would, he would do something really big in my life. But sadly, when Jesus doesn't fix the situation like this criminal, they go on their way and they just continue to hurl abuses at him, whether literally or figuratively, that's still the case because they're more motivated by their own selfishness and what they want God to do for them instead of giving to him what he rightly deserves, which is worship. But the other man, the other man was different. The other man becomes a picture of the person who accepts the fact that they were wrong. That there was something that they needed to repent from. They were guilty of something in life. He represents this. And, and, they, and he was able to embrace it and literally beg the Lord to remember him in the last moments of his life. While they're hanging there on the cross for the world to see. Listen to his, his heart here in verse 40. Do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, this is what we read a minute ago. And we indeed are suffering justly. You hear his heart? We've done wrong for we are receiving what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man is in the midst of a transformation even as he's speaking this. He didn't back away from his guilt, you know, which is what so much of humanity wants to do and just say it's everybody else's fault. We're really good at pointing the blame at somebody else, right? But he didn't back away from his own guilt, but really faced it head on and, and turned away from the life that he had been living for, to Jesus for salvation. Notice what he says again in verse 42. You just have to read this over and over again. Remember me, Lord. And I'm adding that part. When you come into your kingdom. What a situation. Can you imagine being there in that moment and hearing this man say this? With the glory of it all, you're kind of waiting on pins and needles and listening to the drum roll as we're wondering what is the Lord going to say here? You and I would be saying, forget you. You just were cursing me 10 seconds ago and now you want me to save you. Doesn't work that way in our book. But thank the Lord we're not reading our book. We're reading the Lord's book. And here's what he said in verse 43. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. While the other man went to his death and no doubt eternal damnation. Just a footnote. This is a beautiful text of scripture to understand that God is speaking against what some would call purgatory. And I understand all the ins and outs of what that means. There are some that would say, yeah, but he died a martyr. The, the criminal died a martyr, and that's different. Uh, can I just say to you, there is no distinction in Scripture here from anybody. This man was a criminal, a known criminal. 
And yet the Lord extends his hand of mercy to him simply because he asked the Lord to. And the Lord was willing. We come upon a third person, a soldier. I've termed him as a ruling man. A person in authority. Sometimes those are the hardest nuts to crack, aren't they? You may work for somebody like that. Pretty tough nut to crack. You may be the nut that's hard to crack. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. We're still in chapter 23 of Luke. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. If you look at Mark's gospel account in chapter 15 and verse 39 of this same thing, the centurion then listening to this, responds by saying, truly this man was the Son of God. That's a very profound statement. Because this man was a leader of many people. In fact, the term centurion in the Roman government was to be a person who led at least 100 people, 100 other soldiers. And no doubt he was the leading commander over the execution. And so he's presiding over all that has happened at this point. But still an unbeliever in the true God. In fact, the Romans had a different view of gods. There were many gods to the Romans. They believed that the spirits inhabited everything around them, including people. But specifically, if you've studied Roman history, you know that the Romans worshipped basically 12 gods, unique gods, of which Zeus was the strongest. And they also believed that they were watched over by the spirits of their ancestors. And so for Jesus to come along and to be professed to be just another god, that would be just that. He's just another god. What's the big deal? Just add him to the list. So we have to ask the question then, if that centurion was raised in that kind of environment of the many gods, what made the difference? Why would he say such a thing? Well, the obvious answer is because Jesus was different. And Jesus is different, isn't he? Jesus is very different. He wasn't different to the centurion because the centurion knew who he was. That wasn't the case, and that's pretty clear from this but because of what he saw in Jesus as he went through what he went through. And the centurion, having carried out many of these crucifixions, I'm sure would have said, there's no one that is able to withstand what this man has withstood. In fact, we're told that in history that after the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, there were so many crucifixions that they ran out of lumber and couldn't find a way to fulfill it. Can I just read you something that most of you are familiar with, but I think it's always appropriate on this weekend to be reminded of what Jesus went through, just to put ourselves there. This comes from a study by some doctors in March of 86, the Journal of American Medical Association. And I've got the the references here if you want to follow this, if you want to see it afterwards. They write this from the medical perspective. According to that study, everyone who was crucified was first beaten. The victim's arms were lifted up and tied to a pole, leaving him in a slumped position. Braided leather thongs 
with bits of metal and bone embedded in them were used to lash the victim from the bottom of the neck down to the back of the knees. Two lictors, or attendants of the Roman magistrates, hit him with alternating blows. There were no indication as to how many lashes the victims customarily received. That was at the discretion of the lictors. The bone and the metal would rip into the flesh, causing deep contusions and lacerations into the subcutaneous tissues and then into the fabric of the muscles. The resulting pain and blood loss would lead to circulatory shock. All three men crucified that day were scourged, but the soldiers in their mockery of Jesus put a robe on him made of wool that would have irritated his open wounds. They also placed a crown of thorns on his head, beat him in the head with a stick, and spat on him. At some point, they tore the robe off of him, which would have ripped open the wounds. Further, the bloody sweat he experienced made his skin hypersensitive. The Lord also suffered from lack of sleep, lack of food, and lack of water. Arriving at the place of crucifixion, the prisoners would be often offered sedation, which Jesus refused, and then be thrown to the ground on their backs. The cross piece would then be pulled under their shoulders and their arms nailed to it using tapered iron spikes five to seven inches long and about a half inch square. They were driven through the wrists rather than the palms of the hands so that they could carry the full weight of the slumping body. The impaled victim was then lifted up and the cross piece was attached to the upright post, often called the stipes. The feet were then nailed with one nail, the knees bent so that the victims could push up on the wounds in their feet as well as pull up on the wounds in their wrists in order to breathe. The sagging position of the body with the knees bent made it impossible to breathe steadily. The soldiers could cause death in minutes by breaking the victim's legs. Needless to say, no one survived crucifixion. When death finally mercifully came hours or days later, The Roman soldiers confirmed it by piercing the victim's chest with a spear. The resulting flow of blood and water would indicate death. And certainly, as we read through that, no man could could live through that. No one could survive that. No man would respond to such humility. I mean, humiliation while being treated that way or yet speak forgiveness to the perpetrators? As Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them? One commentator said this, this was not the behavior that they had ever seen from a crucified victim. People who died in this torturous fashion suffered from oxygen deprivation to their brains and were incoherent long before they actually succumbed. They could barely breathe, let alone shout at the top of their voice. But this man took death by his own will and made it his servant. Praise his name. And so the centurion watching all this could only do one thing, and that was to respond to Jesus as God come in the flesh. Not with a verbal affirmation, but because he truly believed. In other words, I don't think he was just saying this was the Son of God. No, he truly believed. He had a heart change that this was truly God come in the flesh. In fact, Luke tells us he was so convinced he began praising God. He began to worship God. And I think became a true believer at that moment, at that very instant. He became a true follower of Christ, meaning Listen, salvation, beloved, can occur anywhere. 
If a person can be saved at the base of a cross of someone being so brutally changed, then surely you and I, in a church service or driving down the street or by our bed or sitting beside a river or at our desk or wherever we are, even mowing the lawn, God can come into our hearts. All he needs is for us to say, Lord, forgive me. And we know he's a believer also back to the centurion because of the word praise, which means to glorify and honor. And this is the words that the Lord uses when he writes about this man, which is another form of worship, which means to bow the head or tip the head, to lay down, to honor God in some way in exaltation. And so again, this man becomes a good example of what the Apostle Paul would write later when he said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, why is that, Paul? Because in verse 10, Paul says, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You see, the heart changes. And the centurion had a heart change. Because he saw who Jesus truly was. The question would be for us today. Do we see Jesus truly for who he is? Now moving on quickly here. There were several other people here in verse 49. Some acquaintances that were told. All his acquaintances. That's speaking of Jesus. And the women who accompanied him from Galilee. Were standing at a distance seeing these things. Well who are these acquaintances? Well the word in Greek literally means to know. Or to acknowledge. And so these were the people who were in Jesus' circle of relationships. Those people who had been close to him. They were there watching all this. The people who had lived with him. They'd been a part of his life. The women, the men, including Jesus' own mother, had traveled with them and been a part of what was going on. Had removed themselves. We're told in John's Gospel, chapter 19, that they had originally been standing right there at the foot of the cross. But... I think overwhelmed with what they were seeing. And Mary, if you can imagine, bless her heart, watching her son go through this, removed themselves and went a ways away. As I was thinking through this, I, I was trying to put myself there, imagining what it would be like to see a friend, a loved one, a brother or sister, a father or mother, somebody treated in such a way. I mean, Jesus had been so much to them. He had been everything to them. The one who had done such good. And aren't we looking for good in our society today? We long for something good. And Jesus had come into such a darkened world and filled it with such light and such goodness. And now there was just pain and misery as he hung there on the cross. You can imagine all that they felt. The cruelest form of punishment for anyone. And then to be the brunt of jokes and ridicule. Just to add salt to the wound. And again, Mary, what parent? What parent wouldn't be crushed sitting there or standing there and watching her son go through what she had to observe? This unjust treatment with really no recourse There was nothing she could do but sit there and take it. I don't think any of us can imagine the horror of that moment. There are many things that come against us in our lifetime. I'm sure many things that come against them in their lifetime, like 
kind of bombs dropping all around them as Jesus was making his ministry known. But this one was a direct hit. This was one that would stagger them to the core. It hurt the most because it affected them the most. Which is why we're told most of the disciples ran. They hid. They were afraid for their lives, thinking they probably would be next. If you've ever been so fearful over something, you know what I'm talking about. Fear has this gripping effect on us where it changes us in strange ways. It, it paralyzes us. It really does totally consume us with doubt and confusion and, and all kinds of things that are just weird. And we respond weirdly to the very next task as small or insignificant as it might be. We respond in strange ways because we've been so devastated by what's happened. But soon, praise the Lord, their hopes in Jesus would become reality as we know how the story ends. I don't know what you've experienced in life, but maybe at some point you too have been looking for someone to give you hope and to restore your joy in life. Well, sometimes we have to go through traumatic experiences in order to really see what's good there. I'm not saying God is playing with us, but God knows our natures and he knows that often we have to see things and hear things and be a part of things in order to experience the good, right? There's no such thing as good if we don't understand the bad. Good means nothing if we don't understand the bad. But when we understand the bad, all of a sudden good is highlighted to the extreme and then we recognize it for what it really is. I've said this way many times before that nobody's going to look for a savior if they don't first realize they're dying. And that might be you this morning. Do you know that you're dying? I'm not talking about just physically. That's a, that's a date we're all going to keep, right? But do you know that you're spiritually dying? Well, Jesus can fix that too. There's another man named Joseph of Arimathea. I call him a fearful man. Mark tells us he was waiting for the kingdom of God, according to Mark 15, a righteous man, a courageous man, because he was willing to go to Pilate, of all people, to ask for the body of Jesus. That would have taken a lot of courage. And the reason he did that, we know historically, is because what they did with criminals is they would pull their bodies down from the cross and they would just throw them in a criminal's grave like a mass grave. And so while unknown to Joseph, again behind the scenes in God's divine providence, he was fulfilling his own word that he spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah 53 hundreds of years before Jesus would die. His grave was assigned with wicked men. There's the crucifixion. Throw him in the pit. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, and that's Joseph, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Hundreds of years before this event, God had prophesied through his man, Isaiah, this very event, the taking down of Jesus' body and putting it in his own grave. But here's the thing. As great of a man as Joseph was, he wasn't always that way. In fact, we're told in John's gospel, chapter 19, in verse 38, after these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, he was a follower of Jesus, but watch this, because this identifies a lot of people, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. What? That's what it says. In other words, he was a man who evidently believed in Jesus, but there was a part of him that was too afraid to step out. 
too fearful to make a difference. Evidently, according to what we read here, he was afraid of being found out. He didn't want the public ridicule. Maybe he would have lost his position. Or worse, maybe they would have thrown him in the pit after crucifying him. I think as I listen to this about Joseph, I find that this really fits a lot of people. There are a lot of people who want to love Jesus. And they want to surrender their life to him, but they're more afraid of the crowd than they are of Jesus. They're more afraid of how they'll be treated in this life and how people will think of them instead of what their relationship with Jesus should be like. Especially in our day, when the world is growing more and more antagonistic towards the people of God. I can tell you this, beloved, and this is not to be a downer on Easter, but it's simply to say that in our world, it's not going to get better, okay? I mean, I hate to be the one to break it to you. How can I say that? Because of God's word. He tells us, yes, there will be times of prosperity, but there's coming a day where the Lord is going to come back and it's not going to get better until he does. Notice Jesus says, though, in Matthew 10, of those who are fearful of the world, do not fear them for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, listen, what I tell you in the privacy of your heart, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Listen, we're free in this nation, at least now, to do just what we're doing here this morning. We are proclaiming the name of Jesus on the rooftop, so to speak. And that's what the Lord said to do. Further, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Joseph changed. Joseph stepped out of his fear, being so influenced by Jesus, and took a chance to do what was right. So he went to Pilate, he took the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus, and we're told he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had ever been laid. Can I ask you a question this morning? What are you afraid of? I mean, what are you really afraid of? We all are. Good counselors will tell you that we all have this thing called a core fear button. I think Gary Smalley came up with that some years ago. It's that little internal button in all of us that says, oh, you're getting a little too close with your questioning or your thoughts or your issue and and, and, and I'm going to run this way because you might find out too much. We all have internal fears. The question would be, are we so afraid that we would even deny Jesus as being Lord of our lives when he has proven himself to be just that? Thankfully, Joseph overcame that. And then we have one of my favorite characters, Nicodemus. I call him a religious man. There are many people who are religious in this life. To be religious is not being saved. That's not to be born again. That just means you understand some theology. Theology is just another word that says, this is what I believe. But Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was an influencer, a very powerful man who encountered Jesus by night because like Joseph of Arimathea was too afraid to go to Jesus during the day because of his prominence. 
And we read this beautiful story in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the Hebrews, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher, for nobody can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed, Jesus said, that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going, so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I I finally understood that verse the other night. When Jesus says this to Nicodemus, what he's saying is, you can't figure out what God is doing. You know, sometimes people will say, how do you know that Jesus is truly God? And we say, I can't tell you that other than he's made himself known clearly through his word to me. You know, there are lots of people that read the Bible cover to cover and they'll throw it away and say, it's just a book. Well, it is just a book until you truly encounter and see Jesus for who he is. How does he do that? I don't know. Explain the wind. Where's it coming from? Anybody know right now? Oh, well, our meteorologist friends can tell us. It basically turns from here and we can tell by the world's turning and the seasons and all that stuff. But really the the bottom line is we don't know. It just goes where it goes. The Spirit does the same thing. And this morning, the Spirit of God is searching our hearts. And he's testing the heart. Some of you, he's squeezing your heart and he's saying, listen to me, listen to my word. Don't just throw me away. Don't cast me off. These are the words of eternal life. And you will be changed forever. And so Nicodemus was changed. He became a believer because we're told later in Luke's gospel that he went also with Joseph to take the body of Jesus down. No longer afraid, no longer under the cover of darkness. Nobody would be hiding when you go to a cross and you pull a body down, especially Jesus's. I think Nicodemus learned that day that no amount of religion will save a person. And he was the leader. Listen, you can't study the Bible enough to be saved. We look at the Bible to learn about who Jesus is, to know his word so we know how to live, but only Jesus saves. It's a relationship with him. It's a saving relationship. It's a personal saving relationship. You can't do it on your own. And Nicodemus got it. And he surrendered his life evidently to the Lord. And now we come finally to the last part of this, and that is the women who are these precious caregivers. I'm sensitive to caregivers because my mom and dad both had precious men and women who were caregivers for them. And so I kind of get a sense a little bit personally of these people. Notice in verse 55 of Luke, when the women had come with him out of Galilee, they followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Now we know who these are because Matthew and Mark describes them or identifies them. In Mark's gospel, we're told that it is Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, that Mary the mother of James is James the less and his brother Joseph and Salome. 
These were the people who ministered to Jesus in his life and in his travels, making sure that he was okay. And they had watched this event unfold along with Jesus' mother. They also watched, we're told here, Joseph and Nicodemus. They followed along behind them, taking Jesus' body down, preparing it for burial, and then placed in the tomb. And according to John's Gospel, chapter 1939, Nicodemus bought 100 pounds of spices to go and prepare the body. A little footnote there if you're interested in the technicalities for you engineering types. A pound, a Roman pound wasn't 16 ounces. It was about 11 and a half pounds. So if you do the math, it's about somewhere between 65 to 75 pounds. But either way you cut it, that's a big bag of spice. And these men were serious because they had known him personally. They had been personally moved and they went to do the job. Now, the women probably didn't know these men because the men were from the south and the women were from the north. And so they determined, and this is what I love about this, they determined themselves, even though Joseph and Nicodemus went to prepare the body of Jesus, they also wanted to do something for Jesus. And so they went also to prepare the Lord's body for burial. But they were fighting the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, and so they had to rest. They couldn't do that. They couldn't purchase anything because you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath until the Sabbath was over, which would have been 6 p.m. on Saturday. A day started in the evening at 6 p.m., not like ours at midnight. It started in the daytime or in the evening at 6 p.m. And so that would have given them enough time to go and buy the ointments that they needed before the next morning, which would have been the first day of the week or Sunday, which is why you and I celebrate the resurrection. And so we're told, according to Luke 24, that they rose early in the morning on the first day of the week, just about the time the sun was peeking over the hills, giving enough light to make the journey to the tomb. I was out early this morning, as I often am, and uh, on Sunday mornings, and it was a beautiful day. I don't know how many of you all saw as the sun was just peeking up, the rays of light were just beginning to come through the, crowd, the clouds. And I thought, boy, I wonder what that day was like when the ladies went to do this. But among those faithful women was this special woman, Mary Magdalene, and I've grown in my appreciation for her. I call her a pitiful woman whom the Lord changed. She had already made her way, we're told according to John 20, that she had already, early before anybody else, made her way to the tomb. Outran the other women while it was still dark, even though they all left while it was dark. But Mary Magdalene got there first and saw that the tomb was empty. And so she runs back to get the disciples who we read earlier in our text didn't believe her. Now be the disciples just for a minute. You'd walked with Jesus. You'd lived with Jesus. You'd seen all of his miracles. He was hung on the cross. His body was dead. And you walk away and you say, sorry, Mary, I don't believe you. Except for Peter who we're told runs to the grave and meets the other women who had gotten there by then, evidently. Mary then comes back with him and stays there until the rest leave. Now, in our minds, if we could just for the last couple minutes here, do you wonder why Mary was so anxious to get to the tomb? That's a question that just kept going over and over in my mind. Was it because she was just an anxious person? Was she a person who just needed to cross the, eye, cross the T's and dot the I's and just make it all happen? Or was it because she was just an early ariser, had to work a lot during the day and had to get this one thing out of the way? Was it any of that kind of thing? Maybe she just wanted to get the job done? I think we would be foolish to believe that based on the context. Or was it because the Lord had so changed her heart? Listen, 
He had so changed her heart and life, she could not not go. She had to go. Compelled by the Spirit of God. If you've been watching the Chosen series, and I hope many of you have, it's really very well done. This is the same Mary of whom Jesus had cast out demons. In fact, seven demons were told in Luke chapter 8. And she was from a place called Magdala, filled with seven demons. Now look at your person next to you and just ask the question. Don't ask them. You'll get in trouble. But just ask yourself, are they filled with demons? And you'd go, gosh, I hope not. But imagine knowing a person who had been filled with seven demons or had that kind of torturous life. The interesting thing, like Simon of Cyrene, this is really all we're told about her until we explore a little bit more. Uh, Some have said, and the Chosen series brings it out, that maybe she was a prostitute. It's brought up that she was from the Red District, which would have been where they were. But it's really unlikely, and I'll just say this kind of carefully because I don't know for sure, but it's a little unlikely that Luke would have introduced her by name here for the first time if they would have already known who she was. There's no reason to think that just because a person is in a sin that they're filled with demonic possession, although I certainly believe that any unsaved person, and hear this carefully, any unsaved person at any given time in life is held captive by a demon or demons because there's no spirit of God there to keep them safe. Well, this was this dear woman who had this exceedingly torturous life you imagine just for a minute what that life was like where you say, no, I really can't imagine that. And the Lord knew that, and that's why he left us an illustration. In Mark chapter 5, we're told that they came to the other side of the sea. This is just in Jesus' travels, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. So number one, he's not only filled with the demonic world, but he's living in the graveyard. Most people are freaked out to go to a graveyard, right? It's really a very peaceful place. Not many people interrupt you there. You don't really see many people having picnics and walking the dog and flying kites and that kind of thing. It's a pretty nice place to be. And no one, we're told, was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. That was that man's life. Tortured. Not only mentally, emotionally, but physically. If his life was this way, if his life was that way, and Mary had seven demons in her, then imagine how she was so brutally treated by the demons. It's easy to understand, isn't it? Why she was so anxious to take care of the body of Jesus. He changed her. He set her free. He gave her life. He removed the burden of what those demons were capable of doing and what they did do, no doubt. She'd been released. Listen, 
If you've ever been released by the bondage, from the bondage that you experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart wants to be with Jesus, right? You just can't get enough of the Lord. We're the ones people call the Jesus freaks. Praise the Lord. I'll be a Jesus freak. Why? Because I know he set me free. And all of that is so clear from the text. Not that she believed that Jesus was alive. The text is clear there. She didn't believe that she didn't know that Jesus was alive, but she loved him so much. Listen to how John describes her at the moment. This is at the moment of the tomb. John 20, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Now that word weeping is not just the kind of thing like that. It's the, ah! It's the moaning. The, the noise that's accompanied with the, the brokenness of the soul that has no control over itself because it's been so crushed. And she was crushed. She couldn't contain it. She couldn't contain her sorrow. In all the years of pastoral ministry, I've only experienced that kind of wailing one time at the loss of a person who lost a loved one. My wife and I had a friend of ours who was killed in a car wreck, a godly man, godly family. We went to the home immediately that night, and as we walked in, the wife and the kids were sitting there all but one, youngest daughter, I think it was, was upstairs and all we could hear was her just screaming, Daddy! 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 I want my daddy! And it just went on and on and on. Almost uncomfortably. For some of you who have lost a loved one close to you, you know it's difficult. It's hard, isn't it? Can we just acknowledge that? so hurtful. I mean, there are times where you're just empty. You feel confused and you just, what I mean by that is our humanness, not our spirits, but our humanness can't really comprehend what's really happened to the person. I mean, one moment you're talking to them and the next moment they're gone, right? I mean, you, in your mind, you're going, what's really happened here? I mean, I've seen people asleep before, and we all sleep, praise the Lord, we like that. But when somebody dies, it's like, where'd they go, right? You're scratching your head. Last week, my wife and I celebrated our anniversary. We did a physically challenging thing and went and climbed the Peaks of Otter in Bedford. It was a lot of fun. We enjoyed each other's company. And on the way home, we stopped by my mom and dad's grave, and as I got out of the car, and again, I'm usually pretty in touch with my emotions. As I got out of the car and went around to the front of the grave, I just began to cry. And Debbie asked me, why the tears today? And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, because I miss them. I miss them. And it's not that I don't know the truth. I know the truth. I know where they are, and I know I'm going to see them again. But the reality is the pain is still there. You get it, don't you? You get it? I think that was Mary. There's no doubt in my mind she knew the resurrection was real. The Jews believed in a resurrection, all but the Sadducees. So why was she so upset? Well, I think because most of Mary's life was a mess. 
just like we talked about, but because, again, Jesus had rescued her. And she didn't want him to be gone. He treated her with such respect, unlike the people of Jesus' day who did not treat women with respect. I think she just couldn't stop being faithful to him. She just had to give it another last goodbye. I think the last thing she felt she could do for Jesus was just to give him one final touch. Just one final touch. To just express her love, not a sexual expression. I'm not talking about that. You know, In fact, if you do a Google search, you'll see that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. That is not true. Okay, So don't believe that garbage. But I think she just wanted to love the man who had so loved her as a friend. To remember him just one last time. I remember many years ago, I wasn't in ministry yet, but Debbie and I were attending the church that she grew up in. And I never forget, I don't even think I've ever told her this, but uh, we were in a group of some men who would go out on visitation. And the pastor was telling us about a woman who had just lost her husband. And he says, guys, I, I saw something that I've never seen before in all my pastoral ministry. He said, we went to the hospital where the, the man had passed away and, and we were there when he died and, and the woman did something, his wife did something I've never seen before. When he died, she climbed up in the bed and lay beside him and put her arm around him. And he said, but Ms. So-and-so, I don't recall her name, but he's, he's not there, you know, trying to comfort her and trying to say, you know what, they'll come in and take care of him. And she just kind of went, I know, Pastor, I know, I know but this is the body of the man that I loved for many, many years. And I just want to hold him one more time. I think that was Mary. I think she was so changed by the Lord Jesus Christ that she just needed one more touch. And that's the way it is for all people who have been changed by Jesus. They just want one more touch. Lord, don't go yet. Can we just stay here and enjoy the fellowship? Can we just stay here and enjoy you? Not because we feel worthy, but because we know we're not worthy. That's the the issue, right? Because he loves us when we're not worthy of getting love. He loves us when we don't deserve his love. That's what makes him so different from every person in the world. Yes, he was fully man, clothed with flesh, but he was first God. And God loves his people. That's why he came. He came to rescue us, to give us a relationship with him. Thankfully, this was not the end. Let's keep going here. I promise you we'll be done. Just take a deep breath. We'll we'll get done here in a second. Luke 24, 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. I could talk about the two angels, but I won't for the sake of time. I think that's just another way that God fulfilled his plan, and it's a beautiful Illustration, but we'll move on with that. Notice Luke's conclusion in verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Hey, he's not here. He's not here. 
He's risen. Remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, also the women who were with them telling these to the apostles. Listen, there's so much that we don't have time to talk about. I mean, we could just stay here all day, such as the shocked guards, the moved stone, all that kind of stuff. But the most important statement of them all is to me right in verse 5 when the angel says to her, Why are you looking for someone who's dead when he is alive? Why are you here, Mary? Why are you here? Jesus saved you. And the women remembered And they went immediately to tell others. Now what Matthew and Luke don't tell us, John tells us. In John 20, she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, I don't know where they have laid him. This is what she says. And when they had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Can you imagine that moment? And did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus had hidden himself from her. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And I have to believe that that was with such tenderness. Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you'd carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. Don't you love this about Mary? Look what she says. And I'll take care of him. I mean, she must have done CrossFit or something. I'll I'll, I'll get him. I'll roll the stone out of the way. I'm going to find him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, or teacher. Can we go back to what we said in the very beginning? When when Jesus calls you by name, you listen, don't you? He says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Oh, wouldn't you just have loved to have been there that day? The glory of, the, of it all, though, is, is that you and I are here today and God has given to us a beautiful, descriptive picture of everything that happened on that day so that we could be there. And we're there as close as we possibly can be. And God is saying to each of us this morning, number one, who are you? Who are you? Which one of these people are you like? And there are many others, but who are you? Are you the doubter? Are you the questioner? Are you the all these things? Are you the one who says you believe in the Lord, but you're still questioning whether he's really God and he's going to be able to pull all this off that he says he is going to be able to do? Why are you looking for the dead among the living? The other way around. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Listen, if you truly believe this morning that Jesus is alive and he really is who he says he is, then on this beautiful, glorious Easter Sunday morning, Wouldn't it be just like Mary, for you to be like Mary, to go to the tomb and say, Lord, I've believed you, but I think you're dead, but only to find out you're not dead? What Jesus is wanting is for each of us this morning to have our hearts renewed and to be strengthened and to believe once again that he is the God-man come in the flesh. And he has a plan for each of us to touch our hearts, to reach us, to make us who he wants us to be. Will you let him? That's the question.
Will you let him? Will you just simply open your heart and say, Jesus, I trust you for who you say you are. You may not understand all of what that means, but you know he is God and he's a good God and he loves you. As we close right now, I'm just going to offer a prayer and I would just simply offer to you Time for you. Some people like to come to the altar. Some people just stay at their seats. Some people just want to do business with Jesus themselves. The issue is do business with Jesus. You might be here today and say, I just want to worship him. Then praise God, you just worship him. But if Jesus is the only answer to your life, and he should be, then I would invite you to just open your heart and let him do what he wants to do. Okay? All right, our time is gone. So let's close as we offer that prayer and that time together. Father, we have had such a blessed morning, such a wonderful opportunity to be together in fellowship over food and the testimonies of these dear brothers. Lord, we've already had two men speak to us, not from the Bible per se about their life, but about how the Bible impacted their lives. And they become living examples of exactly who these people were we studied this morning. So praise you, Father, for people who have life-giving testimony of your great work. Lord, would it be this morning, before we leave, or before that soul that you are talking to right now leaves, that you would change them forever? Lord, help them to ask who they are. And Lord, may they from that question respond with, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And Lord, may we shout that from the rooftops. Lord, help us this morning to be the people that you want us to be, not from emotion or from the things that have occurred in our lives, but use the things in our lives to make us the people you want us to be. And Lord, we pray that you would search the hearts and the minds of your people today and you would do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in the sun. I believe in the 